Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast, and I'm coming to you, as always, from just outside of Boston. You know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news, and I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant but not famous, and well, the not famous part is ironic because they are all well-known and respected in their field by their peers and the communities that they serve, but my next-door neighbor might not recognize their name. Uh, but they really are brilliant and committed to their work, and I love meeting these amazing people and sharing a little bit about them and their passions and the work that they're doing, and I also believe in serendipity. So I hope some positive things come from me sharing their stories with all of you and to the universe. And today I'm super excited to have uh, Dara Eisner, uh, MD, PhD. Uh, Dr. Eisner is a professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and director of the Colorado Molecular Correlates Laboratory. And after her undergraduate work at Vanderbilt, Dr. Eisner completed her MD-PhD combined degree at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School and Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences. She pursued training at the uh, in anatomic pathology um, at the National Institutes of Health and went on to two fellowships in surgical pathology and molecular genetic pathology at my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and she's been with the University of Colorado since 2010. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. And uh, Daryl, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for that very kind introduction. And man, that feels like all a very long time ago now. <laughs> and now, look, now you're just this really important person, but you have all these all these uh, breadcrumbs that you left along the way. So, and we were introduced by uh, Dr. Kamich. So, um, really, really a pleasure to get to know you and the work that you're doing. So. You know, I would I would um, love to start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you you mentioned that you're from Baltimore, but tell us a little bit about you about uh, the younger uh, Dr. Eisner. Well, um, I sort of came to where I am through many uh, moments of serendipity, I would say. Um, I am a molecular genetic pathologist, which means that I uh, intersect the concepts of laboratory medicine, diagnostic pathology, and genomics. And um, that was not really what I thought I would do when I went to medical school. I, I had planned to become an oncologist and treat patients with cancer. And, you know, I think a lot of people view pathologists as these mousy, socially awkward people who can't interact and are very removed. And I think what I can tell you, having been in pathology, is that many of us are actually um, extremely sensitive individuals. And for me, part of what made me think about pathology as a career was that in spending time uh, in medical oncology as a medical student, I just found that I couldn't really handle the, the amount of personal grief that came with it. And um, I found that I was really profoundly impacted by it in a way that I didn't think would be sustainable for me for my life. And, you know, I think as a pathologist, I don't often get to meet my patients directly, but I still very much feel the impact of what I do in terms of how, how much this is personal to an individual. And so, you know, if I'm it, sitting at my microscope doing anatomic pathology, issuing a, a first diagnosis of lung cancer to somebody, I, I, I feel that, um, you know, that there's 
there's emotion that comes along with that in a in a way that goes like, oh gosh, I really wish I weren't the one delivering this news. <laughs> um, and luckily for me, I'm not the one delivering it to the patient because that's the part that I find really challenging. But I'm still the one delivering it. So um, it's it, I, I think um, for me, I I've really found that being in the intersection of the diagnostics and being really at the forefront of the patient care, but not in a, in a place where um, I, I feel the impact of it to quite the same degree is a really nice fit for me. Um, like I said, I, I do feel it and often in a negative way, um, but there's also the positive sides. And, you know, as somebody who runs a laboratory that is dedicated to uh, working in the space of personalized medicine and, and precision medicine diagnostics, you know, when we get a result for somebody that is a, a, a really important result, that that's the part that feels really good, right? And so when we get to be the ones to tell somebody that they have an ALK positive lung cancer or a ROS1 positive cholangiocarcinoma or whatever it is, uh, you know, there's there's good in that. And so uh, it, it's, a, it's a neat field and it's a really neat time to be in this intersection of diagnostics and genomics and oncology. Yeah, and uh, you know, I've had I've had some of the oncologists on my show who talk about, you know, certainly we talk about those cha emotional challenges of dealing with the patients and their families, but also on the other side, delivering good news and how one of them actually, uh, one of my friends from UPenn actually, uh, Dr. Agarwal, who who said she actually gives joy from bringing, to, you know, to deliver to making that phone call to a patient to say you know, here, Dave, I have good news. And she hadn't really thought about it that, that until we, we were talking about it. But so for so many years, we all know that there was not many, not much good news that could be delivered to a, to a lung cancer patient. So I can see definitely where you fit in there. And I totally get the whole emotional part of it too, because I, at one time years ago, thought maybe I could be a doctor, but no, for me, it was more of the, you know, the, the, the blood and all that, that part of it. But yeah, the blood the blood doesn't bother me, but the uh, <laughs> but the wrenching heartache does. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. And uh, but if I could go back to you know to how how you ended up in in pathology and how you were you were thinking of going uh, to becoming a medical oncologist, but you know being from Baltimore, as I look at your path going you know from Vanderbilt to Texas to Colorado, you seem to be moving further west um, every step of the way, which I thought was kind of funny when we first talked and, and you talked about, you know, uh, your mom, you know, not maybe thinking Penn was the best place because <laughs> Penn was kind of a dangerous place back when I was there. Um, but kind of, can you t t tell us about how you sort of, you, you know, you started moving to, you know, you went to Vanderbilt and then to Texas and 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 how that kind of came about. And I, I know you love Colorado, so if you can kind of fill, us, fill in the dots for us, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, I think like so much in life, um, a lot happens based on random things that land in front of you. And so I, I wound up at Vanderbilt, I think in large part, partially by happenstance, partially because I had family um, in Nashville, partially because I wanted to uh, be somewhere that wasn't in a very cold winter, right? So you, you sort of put a bunch of serendipity together and you wind up in one spot and and I think that piece of serendipity is sort of how I wound up in Texas, because I, I certainly looked at medical schools that were, um, you know, at various areas of the country. And in large part, I, I wound up uh, choosing to go to school in Texas because I was 
really enamored by some of the research that was done there. And I knew I was wanting to do a PhD or an MD PhD. And I, I saw a really easy fit for myself in some of the research labs there. And when you're deciding that you're wanting to go to graduate school, it isn't just about the curriculum. It's also about whose lab could you see yourself in? Um, you know, you're going to be toiling away in a lab for four or five, six, maybe more years. You want to be in an environment where you know that there's going to be more than one lab to pick from that will be good for you. So, you know, again, I think in, in a lot of respects, it was about serendipity and, um, you know, and um, I I had a, a great education at UT Southwestern. I will say I felt a little bit like a fish out of water as a, uh, as a Baltimore girl living in Dallas. <laughs> yeah, we were laughing about that. Because, of course, a, a Jewish girl from Baltimore ends up in Texas, right? Because that, that's what you're supposed that's, to that's do. Just, that's just how that works, of course. It's just natural. Yeah. It's just a natural, yeah, yeah. of course. I, I just spoke with somebody recently who uh, also went to UT Southwestern and for similar reasons and actually worked in the lab. I think his name was, was John Minna, I think was the, was it, I'm sure you recognize that name and, and how much that meant to her. And she's at Indiana now, her name is Dr. Misty Shields. But, uh, you know, that decision to go there at the, because at the time there were these people. And so it is more than just the, the name of the institution or the reputation or whatever it really has to do with, with, with a lot more than that, which I think is really cool. So um, did, did you have, you know, as as you were going through medical school and then, you know, deciding on your 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 residency and your fellowships and, and were there mentors along the way that kind of made you starting to think about pathology or did that come from your own, from your own sort of emotional stuff that you talked about or how did that come about? Um, in many respects, the, the idea of pathology came to me um, because, you know, up until the, the sort of moment I had the aha, I probably shouldn't be a medical oncologist moment, I, I was really going full full steam ahead. I had already applied to internal medicine programs. I already had interviews lined up. And I sort of had that aha moment. And I thought, well, you know, I, I've spent so much of my then short life uh, in sort of the cancer biology arena. How do I stay in cancer biology as a physician without being the person to treat the patients? And so I think in, in many respects, pathology was a natural choice because of its connection to thinking about biology. Um, you know, there's many aspects of pathology that are not exclusively focused on oncology applications, but much of pathology today is about diagnosing neoplastic and cancerous conditions and staging them. And, and yes, there are certainly, you know, roles for pathology in inflammatory diseases and autoimmune diseases and transplant and lots of other areas. I'm not trying to say that pathology is purely an oncologic specialty, but it it certainly is a, a very natural fit between them. And so, you know, while I, while I do some non-oncology-driven pathology work, um, it was really the connection to cancer biology and the connection to oncology that made me think about pathology as, as a alternate way to think about being involved in cancer care. Well, it's interesting. You talked about serendipity and I, I, I see, you know, from as a non-scientist, when I think of, of the advances in, in lung cancer and how the important role of pathology plays, you know, in biomarker testing and so forth. So it's, when I think of it's sort of serendipitous that, you know, that with a, with some of the, a lot of the work that you're doing in lung cancer, it was, it was just really good timing. 
you know, as, as we've talked about with, with my experience was, was before this era of precision medicine, you know, and so it was, you didn't have many options as a lung cancer patient, you know, and so, and so now we do. So it seems like such a, um, a really good fit. And what you had talked to me about, you know, you, the primary scope based diagnostics, but your main passion of biomarkers. And can I, can you kind of explain those two things? I know you, you, you want to keep yourself active in, in, in those things. So I see you smiling. So I'd love to have you share that with us. Well, I think a lot of people think of pathology as this black box. And when I give talks with a slide deck, I actually have a, a slide that has a, a black box with a, a magic bunny that pops out of it. And it's like, you, you put a sample in and whammo, you get a pathology report and it's all magic. You wave your wand. <laughs> um, and, and in reality, that's not what it is, right? There's a whole series of technical steps that happen behind the scenes. And the technical steps of what we do with the tissue is an important part of making sure that we're able to do what we need to do. But on the other end of all of those technical steps, you have tissue that came out of somebody and it needs to get examined under the microscope. And being a pathologist is, is really about um, high level pattern recognition, right? And so one of my once upon a time hobbies that I haven't had time for with two young children is bird watching, right? And it's actually not that uncommon for pathologists to like bird watching because it's all pattern recognition, right? Where's the yellow dot? Is it on the eye? Is it under the eye? Is it on the wing? Right. And that's not dissimilar to what uh, being a pathologist and spending time in the microscope is about. It, and it's about, you know, really fine tuning your eyes to be able to recognize these distinctions. And, you know, I think it's challenging because um, if it was only about that, if it was only about, oh gosh, these nuclei don't look right, this must be cancer, then, you know, there might be some argument to be made that it could be a technical call. But in many respects, I, I, I think of myself as a integratician, right? My job is not to just say, oh, this is what I see on the slide. It's this is what I see on the slide and this is how it relates to all of the other things going on. And, um, you know, there are some modes of pathology practice where it's just, okay, I'm just gonna say what I see on the slide. But I think that bringing another level to the practice is really about being able to sort of put all the pieces together in, in an integrated way. And that's why I like the term integratician, because really, in many respects, my job is to take the patient's lab values and their CT scan values and their clinical history and say, all of this makes sense with what I'm seeing on the slide. Not just this is what I see on the slide, but this is how it all makes sense together. And so, you know, that is really the, the um, foundation of pathology is this concept of microscopic pattern recognition as a way to pull together a unifying explanation for what's happening with someone. Right. And the next sort of layer of that for me is, is the molecular genetic part. And what I find particularly rewarding is that I get to do both. Right. And, um, you know, uh, 15 ish years ago, the concept of marrying, the slide pathology-based work and the molecular diagnostics was relatively new. And there weren't that many places in the country that really had people that specialized in that intersection of those two areas. But 
in today's era where we think about targeted therapy across so many different tumor types, it's really become its own sort of niche area. And it's a niche area within both of the larger areas, right? It's a niche area within diagnostic pathology is having a pathologist who, who knows the details of the molecular testing. And then on the flip side, if, as somebody in the molecular lab who knows all of the details of the microscopic diagnostic work and the specimen processing that happens to get you there. So it's, it's a really neat convergence of these two areas. Yeah. And well, I have to tell you, 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 you totally geeked me out when you talked about bird watching because I'm a, I'm an avid bird watcher myself and when I have the time to do it, but, uh, I, I have this family of Northern Cardinals that I, they're every morning and every evening I hear them singing out there and then they, they come visit the feeders and, and so I've got quite a, uh, I've got two feeders in my backyard. So, you know, I've got the, you know, the, the, the songbirds, I get a lot of those, but then I, every once in a while, it's like this big bird will come by. It's like, whoa, that's a flicker or whatever. It's like, that was really cool. So we'll talk about that another day, but you got me, you, you got my brain sort of on fire. Well, out here that. in Colorado, there are no Northern Cardinals. I, I grew up seeing them and haven't seen them just about since moving out here. Well, you see the photo in the back I have, that's my, my son. Uh, took that photo of a of a uh, it's a Canada Jay, and he goes hiking up in the White Mountains, and and they land on his hand. They, it's it's just remarkable. So, um, very cool stuff. But I, it, what you were talking about, I I think um, how you view your work and how important it is in the intersection of the two things that you mentioned. One thing we also talked about that I would love to have you expand upon is this this idea of of commoditization of of this molecular testing right and we when you think about there are just so many companies now that are that are offering these different tests and trying to get market share and whatnot and i and you and i talked about the the you know this value of a, of the local lab and and with your experience and having having been right in there doing this great work i would love to have you talk to us about about that sort of added value or that sort of delta that that goes beyond and why why the work that you do is so special and so important Oh, I would love to talk about that. Um, and it's a particular passion of mine. You know, I, I think there are lots of companies out there that offer sequencing services for cancer. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say any of them do a bad job because I don't think anybody um, that I know of does a, a bad job. And if they do, I'm just not aware of it. Um, you know, and, and in many respects, you could think about it like, oh, well, it's a lab test and, and, everybody should get the same exact result on this lab test. But in, in reality, I don't view this as being as straightforward as a lab test because there's so much nuance that goes into all of these bits and pieces. And it's that piece of being able to integrate with the patient's medical record that I think makes some of the biggest difference. And, you know, um, an example I can give you is, you know, we, we had a patient here who was diagnosed with a squamous cell carcinoma of the lung. And we were working on the molecular testing and we noticed that it looked kind of like it had a, a UV signature in the mutational pattern. And that's not something you normally think of as happening inside the lung. And it's only because I was part of the same patient's medical system that I was able to dive into the patient's chart and identify a history of multiple basal cell carcinomas in the past. And you sort of put that together and you go, well, people don't think basal cell carcinoma metastasizes, but it does once in a very rare while, right? And the fact that we 
could put all of those pieces together meant that we were able to say, well, that's fine if clinically you think this is a squamous cell carcinoma of the lung, but we have data points A, B, C, D, and E to suggest that the diagnosis might be different, right? And so it's that sort of difference that I think is really one of the things that allows us to really be involved in care as opposed to providing a test result. Um, and that's really a, a big part of, of what I find satisfying about the job is being able to pull some pieces together in a way that nobody else has seen them. And, you know, it's really, you know, whether it's a function of changing a diagnosis or opening up a new therapy option or using a sample that no other lab would accept, there's things that we can do that help people. And that's really what it comes down to. And, you know, I think that last bit that I, I mentioned is is something that is um, really just about how much time you can devote to any one sample, right? And uh, the big commercial labs are, are, you know, trying to get as many samples done as they can. And if it's a really challenging sample, they might say, oh, we can't make this one work. And, you know, we try really hard to look at it from the lens of, well, if we go to great lengths to make the sample work and we find an answer, what does that mean for the patient? And so, you know, we're, we'll be able to accept samples that other labs will say, no, that's, there's not enough in there, or no, that's not a sample type we accept. And, and we do that very much, you know, through the lens of trying to help patients avoid rebiopsies, um, trying to get answers faster than getting a biopsy rescheduled and, you know, all of the downstream steps that happen from that. And so it's it's not that I think that, you know, the commoditization is a bad thing. I think that it has its place, right? And, you know, the even if you took all of the academic labs in the country and put them together, there's more cancer volume than we could handle, right? So it's it's not a function of market share. The testing should be coming to lab type A or lab type B. It's about recognizing that there are niche areas that some labs can help in that, other labs can't. And so there's a, a double-edged sword, I would say, right? So on one hand, the commoditization of sort of the concept of, of personalized medicine testing and cancer sequencing for, um, for targeted therapy, that's a good thing because it helps with access, right? And it helps uh, patients have more options for how to get that type of service performed. The flip side of that uh, double-edged sword is that it can sort of shift the thinking about, well, that type of sample, nobody can test it. Well, some of the big labs can't test it, but that doesn't mean nobody can test it. Yeah, and as an advocate for for biomarker testing, you know, on a general level, because I'm not a scientist, I I... I read things like the JCO article that's that talked about in lung cancer how you know two thirds of people who you know have an actionable treatment have an actionable mutation for with a targeted treatment are not getting it for a variety of reasons and we're not we can't dive into all of that right now but but to me the the things that you're pointing out are sort of the what I what I love about my understanding of your role and and how you interact with you know, with the thoracic oncology team and how, and I would love to kind of have you 
talk to me about that because that's to me that's very comforting to know. Like a, do- a patient goes in and they they see a a, a, a Dr. Kamage or or another one of the members of the team, and they they order a biopsy, and then you know what that that collaboration that you have with 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 those. I, I would love to have you share your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's such an integral part of what allows us to um, to make the patient experience better, right? And, you know, we have systems set up here where if a patient is getting a biopsy and the whole reason to get the biopsy is to uh, have molecular testing done or for the biopsy to be available for clinical trials, we, we follow a whole separate set of, of processing to make sure that we're not just churning through the tissue to um, to get a primary diagnosis that's not even needed for that patient anymore because the primary diagnosis is known. Um, and, you know, I think we have so many conversations that are, you know, for patient X, I have, you know, these four pieces of materials available and you get to pick, do you want me to do testing or do you want this to go to clinical trial? You can't have both. Right. And so I'm, I'm having these interactive discussions with the oncologist, helping them to prioritize and helping them to gauge what's available. And I think what's really challenging um, is that if, if you're an oncologist and you get a pathology report that says, yes, there's cancer in here, you don't have any sense of what that quantity is. Right. There's there's no there's nothing in a pathology report that can say like and we know for sure that there will be enough material here to support 15 different clinical trials right that that that's not a knowable function um and so we do our best to help predict what will be available with what has been obtained and help allocate it out so that way we can get as many trials screened or as many molecular results as possible. And so I would say it's really common for me to be in touch with our oncologists to say, okay, we got this sample in and, you know, it's pretty on the bubble for what I can do with it. So we need to decide, you know, we're going to start with, with test one. And when that result comes back, we can then decide on test two or I'll say, you know, oh, we got this back, and I think I can just get all of them done out of the gate, and those results will be out in 10 days, so don't make any decisions right now. So I, I, it, it's that back-and-forth interactiveness that I think really allows us to to be granular in our care for people. Yeah, and one of the things you just mentioned about, you know, the the, the size of the sample, and I think a lot of people may not realize, you know, the that's also part of the patient experience as well is getting getting the sample or 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 not having to go back for to try to have another sample these are invasive kinds of things uh, potentially and where are we at with in your opinion or your experience with you know with with um liquid biopsy because i i've been following liquid biopsy probably for the last seven years or eight years, you know, when some of the earlier research was being done. I still don't completely understand it, you know, to be honest, like circulating tumors, whatever. But the promise of that being, you know, a standard is just, you know, it's easy for someone like me as a non-scientist to understand why that would be important to, not that blood draws are fun, but certainly being able to access the blood versus, you know, some other more complicated procedure. So where are we at with that? And, and, are there things that you're really excited about in terms of the future for that? Well, I think it's such an interesting field and, um, and, you know, just even in the last five years, it has um, come a a huge way. 
Um, I think increasingly it's it's becoming practice for oncologists to order a cell-free DNA test or circulating tumor DNA test or liquid biopsy, however you want to refer to it, as the same time as they order the tumor testing. And, you know, the nice thing for an oncologist and for a patient is, you know, you see you have a clinic visit and you can get a tube of blood drawn the same day and it can get sent out and that process is getting started. Whereas with the tumor testing, if the tumor has already been diagnosed and it's in a block somewhere, someone has to find it and get it shipped and then we got to assess it and then we got to extract it and it takes time. And so you're sort of getting a, a, a head start on the process by getting that uh, circulating tumor DNA going. And so I think what I would say is that when it's helpful, it's extremely helpful. And that when it's not helpful, it has to be thought of as a null rather than a negative. And that I think is part of the biggest learning curve here is that we know that when, when you detect something that can be attributed to the cancer, that it's really good. But that when you're not sure that what, what you're seeing represents the cancer, then the, the tissue testing really is the standard that you have to sort of default to. And the problem there is that what you don't want to do is you don't want to draw the blood, wait for that to come back, and then say, okay, well, now that is not informative, so now we need to start the, the tissue testing process. So this is why I think increasingly we're seeing it happen um, concurrently. I think for me, the biggest challenge on that front is not whether technically it makes sense to do that, because I think there are lots of examples where uh, doing the testing by both mod modalities is absolutely complementary with regard to timing, with regard to results. Um, it's really more a function of payers being, you know, reluctant to to pay for what they view as, as duplicate testing, when in fact it's really complementary testing. I think the other real challenge here is recognizing that um, that piece of whether or not a cell-free or circulating tumor DNA test is informative really requires some training to learn. And you know, there's lots of examples of where an answer comes back from those uh, that type of test, and you think you you know what it means, but you sort of have to peel back some layers of the onion to understand it better. And, you know, some, some easy examples I can give you for that is, you know, a patient who has had prior chemotherapy might have some mutations detectable in their circulating blood. Whether or not you can say, oh, well, we picked up tumor-driven mutations, so therefore we know that we've ruled out all of these other things. We know that just a history of chemotherapy can lead you to have some transient mutations detectable in your blood. So it, it's really about the nuance of knowing what to do with the results. And, you know, one of the things I really enjoy about being in an academic setting is that we get to be part of training a generation of people in how to think about those sorts of things. Um, in terms of where it's going, you know, I would be only too happy to be out of a job because lung cancer didn't exist anymore. And I, I can only hope that between um, some of the current and evolving uh, guidelines around lung cancer screening, um, as well as by cancer detection uh, approaches using uh, cell-free DNA, that we might really get to see a shift in how we think about the presentation for lung cancer. And, you know, I think we've already started to see a little bit of a shift towards earlier stage lung cancer with the lung cancer screening guidelines, right? Um, 
And so I think that that's been a real advantage. Um, but I think, you know, there's still a long ways to go in terms of getting to a point where the majority of lung cancer is caught early as opposed to caught late. And that's something that I really hope we get to to realize on the promise of, of uh, liquid biopsy. Yeah. And I think the screening, you know, getting, because those, the rates of eligible people getting screened, as you know, as we all know, many of us know is so low, you know, that there's so much to be done there to get people actually screened that, that are eligible to have a screen. Right. So, yeah. and there's so many challenges behind that as well, but, but, the, but I, but I have talked with institutions that are seeing, and maybe this is what you're referring to, that they're seeing a shift in the, in the patients. And, and, and again, just in the lung cancer space where I'm familiar where that there maybe at, you know, at, at one period of time that was, you know, 75% were later stage and now it's like more of a balance between first, second, and third, and fourth stage. And so the, the, they do see shifts based on some of the, you know, the work that might be doing in outreach to the community or education or, or whatever. I, I think the one other thing I'd, I'd love your, your feedback on, and of course you can't speak to maybe uh, across, uh, you know, other parts of the country or other, other types of settings, but I, one of the things that I, I try to get my arms around is this idea of, you know, if I go to Mass General where I was treated, you know, and I, and of course I know the entire, pretty much the entire thoracic team there, you know, including, you know, uh, Inga Lennis, who is the, who runs the pulmonary nodule clinic. And I think of the, the level of support and resources and infrastructure that I, that I would have as a patient, as a lung cancer, someone who's suspected of or diagnosed with lung cancer it's very different than if I walk into somewhere, you know, in a community hospital in, you know, rural Minnesota where I'm from, as an example, and 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 understanding the challenges of an oncologist who is working, you know, seeing patients across a number of different uh, cancer types is is that I feel like there's there's inequity there. I'm not really sure. Obviously, I don't have the answer or whatever. I'm just curious on your perspective of, I know how much you love working where you are in such a great place like University of Colorado, because it's much like Mass General, where people have all kinds of resources there. But, you know, what do we do to, to help the patients that are not, you know, coming to a place as University of Colorado? I mean, I think it's a real challenge in the sense that, um, you know, the nature of our healthcare system has so many layers of inequity built into it. And, you know, that could be a whole separate conversation about all of these drivers of inequity and, and certainly care setting is one of them. Um, you know, I think from my perspective, um, you know, one of the biggest hurdles has been getting um, a, a widespread understanding of, of the importance of getting biomarker testing done and holding on first line decisions until those results are back when it's clinically feasible. And I think that we've seen that come a long way. Mm. And this is really, I think, where um, guidelines play a huge role, right? Mm. And, and so, for example, NCCN guidelines, I'm on yep. the NCCN, Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer Guideline Committee. And, you know, in many respects, the one of the main purposes for, of guidelines like that is to give oncologists a roadmap that helps them navigate, um, you know, and... I got to tell you, I, I don't envy any oncologist who's out in the community fielding all of the different tumor types. And, you know, we have a, an, an analogous issue in pathology, which is, you know, as a pathologist, I really only see 
lung pathology at this point or thoracic pathology. And I would feel pretty lost if I had to look at the entire spectrum of, you know, thoracic and gastrointestinal and head and neck and GU. And if I had to look at all of it, I, I would feel pretty overwhelmed. And, yep. and so I think, um, you know, mechanisms that we have to support oncologists in that setting are really some of these uh, guideline-driven approaches that help sort of plot out in stepwise fashion, um, I think is um, an important piece of that. I think, you know, having the stopgap support of academic centers is a really important part. And, you know, I, is it in my job description to field emails and phone calls from whoever happens to email or call? No, but is that part of my job? It absolutely is. Right. And so, you know, it's not that uncommon for any of us in an academic center to uh, field a call or an email from a colleague out in the community who has encountered a situation that they just don't know necessarily what the right answer is. And, and you know, really, our job is to help them help their patient. Yeah. And I, th that's a, that using the phrase backstop, I think, is a really, really important phrase. And I know there's there's probably times when, you're, you, you know, you get those and you're so busy with whatever, but I, I know people like you and I know that you, I'm sure you answer every one of them because um, it's a, because there's a patient at the other end of that. And I know that that's at the end of the day, what matters to you. And so it's been really cool hearing, you know, uh, shining a light on the work that you do, because I feel like this, the people who listen to my show will appreciate that. I think it's, it's, I think it's good for all of us to stop and think about the people behind the scenes that, that are not necessarily delivering news to the patient as you describe it, but actually developing the news that this that an oncologist is going to deliver, and and why that's important, and how how that makes you feel as a as a human as being part of that, which is really cool. So, um, one of the things I, I I like to ask everybody before I before I let them go is uh, and not to put on the spot, and you've already mentioned something that I think you're passionate about, but I love uh, I love having people tell me something that they're passionate about. Uh, outside of work that that people may not know about or they may know about, but something that you'd like to share with us? Um, well, I have two young children. And so my main pastime these days, other than taking care of them, is uh, cooking. And um, there are ways that I could view it as alternatively uh, fulfilling or frustrating. Um <laughs> You know, certainly uh, an evening when I'm making four separate meals for four separate people, that's frustrating. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when I when I get a, a nice chunk of a weekend day where I get to invent something from scratch and, and make it yummy and, and turn it into something where uh, I have a, a rotating cycle of people who will come over and, um, you know, that that element of... Uh, of feeding people as an act of love is, is really uh, built into my DNA, I would say. Oh, I love that. I love that. And thanks for sharing. And, and I'm, and I'm sure, you know, when, maybe when the kids get older, you'll, you'll have a chance to kind of do some more of that, uh, that bird watching that I'm sure you love. And living in Colorado, I can imagine that there's probably some, some, uh, some great bird watching places that you can go. Uh, my wife and I are coming out to the Rocky mountain national park, um, in a few weeks, and so uh, I hope uh, I hope you'll have good weather for us when we when we show up out there. So I hope so too. It's pouring right now. <laughs> so anyway, uh, 
Dr. Reiser, it's really, it's, it's, it's been an honor and pleasure to get to know you. And thank you so much for sharing the work that you do. And thank you for the important work that you do to, to serve patients. I really appreciate that. And thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This is a, a really fun experience and I enjoyed chatting with you. 